And if you're new here, you may have found our Bible reading a little bit strange. Uh, all this stuff about a lion and a lamb and a scroll and heaven and all these people falling down on the ground and what's it all about. And we're in a series at the moment in this book, this, this book of Revelation, the last book in the Bible. And it's a certain type of literature which is called apocalyptic. Apocalyptic. Older members may remember the film Apocalypse Now. Younger members may know about zombie apocalypse. We know about apocalypse, and apocalypse is an unveiling of something that shows the reality behind it. And it's very strange to us, but really, really wasn't strange to the first people who read it back in the first century. And let me just ask you for a moment to do a thought experiment, to join me in a thought experiment, and imagine that you are going to show a Star Wars film or an episode of Star Trek to King Henry VIII. So somehow we got hold of a time machine and we managed to transport Henry VIII, medieval king, into your living room here in Chesington or somewhere else in Surrey. And here he is, he's sitting there in your best seat. And he's a big guy, you know. And he's a king. And, and you, so you've gone to Greg's and bought the finest sausage rolls, pasties, sandwiches. And you're, you're sort of looking at Henry VIII as he's sitting there and he's thinking, where's the swan? peacock and all the other kinds of meat are normally eat. And then you say, well, look, we've, we've brought you here because we wanted to show you this, this uh, film. And you put on your widescreen TV, Star Wars. Now, you know that it's not real because you understand the conventions. You know how this kind of thing works. You understand science fiction. You know that Darth Vader isn't real and the Empire or the Borg and the Klingons uh, they're really representations of something. And those science fiction narratives actually are replaying something about our world and the battle often between good and evil and the need to sacrifice and, and make, work hard and make things happen. And, and so you get it. But a, a medieval viewer would be absolutely baffled. And King Henry VIII would be sitting in your living room going, what is this lightsaber? And how can I get a Death Star? Now, the first readers understood how this type of literature we have here works. You have to use your imagination. Revelation is actually written to purify our imagination. In a world of the first century where the world was full of powerful imagery and symbols about the might and the power of Rome and the emperor, this book was written to give Christians a new set of symbols within which to understand their lives, to understand reality, and to frame their struggles. And today we reach an extraordinary moment in the book. And you know, we're not just reading a book here. We don't just come here because it's some, we haven't got anything else to do on Sunday morning. And because we have a few friends and we like to have a coffee. We're coming because we want to hear from God. The Bible is God's words to us. We can't get his words anywhere else. We need this. We want God to speak as we open his word. It's as if we open the very lips of God. So we're asking him to speak to us today. Because these two chapters, Revelation 4 and 5, we thought about one of them last week, they address one of the most vital concerns that you and I have. What can we trust in an unstable world? We've been remembering today that within the last hundred or so years, this world has seen two devastating world wars in which millions of people 
were sacrificed. And that century also saw many, many other so-called rulers, messiahs, who came to their own people and butchered millions of them. Joseph Stalin was responsible for more deaths than Adolf Hitler. Pol Pot, Idi Amin, the list goes on. Constant change and turbulence in our world. Our lives are so fragile. And the answer that Revelation 4 gave us was that God is on the throne. There is a God in heaven and he rules. He is the sovereign, holy creator. And everyone bows down before him. But you know that vision of Revelation chapter 4 could be quite intimidating, couldn't it? That God, awesome in power and strength, set apart by his holiness, perfection, moral beauty. He is great, but you know, you and I know we are not that great. We know the squalid secrets of our own hearts. And we would shrink away from a God like that. And there were hints already in chapter 4 of Revelation that all is not well. Coming from the throne of God was lightning and rumbling and, and, and thunder. Things that occur when God shows up in his world and comes to set things right. And the phrase in Revelation 4 was, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty who was the creator, who is right now, and who is to come. God is going to come back. He's going to set his world to rights. All is not right at the moment in the state of Denmark or in the rest of the world. We need something more now. And chapter 5 is it. One of the great scholars of the Bible of our generation has written, this is one of the most decisive moments in all of Scripture. Revelation 5 is a drama, a drama that we need. And there are three things I want to draw attention to you in this drama this morning. The scroll, the lion, and the lamb. The scroll, the lion, and the lamb. Uh, look again with me, please, at, at chapter 5, verse 1. I saw in the right hand of him who sat on the throne, that's God, a scroll with writing on both sides and sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming in a loud voice, who is worthy to break the so, so, excuse me, seals and open the scroll? Now, this, this um, scroll is in the right hand of God. And in the ancient world, the right hand was the hand of power and authority, the place of rule. And so here's this, this scroll, and it's in the middle of heaven. So it's obviously very significant. And it's got writing on both sides, inside and on the back. So it obviously has a lot to say. But it is completely sealed. It has seven seals, and seven in the book of Revelation is a number of fullness or completion. So you just can't open it. It's totally sealed. And opening this scroll is clearly very important because the angel in verse 2 says this loud question, who is worthy to break the seals and open it? And they can't find anyone. We recently moved house to Chesington, and we have received a number of letters in official brown envelopes. Envelopes marked on the outside important, to be opened by addressee only. And then the, the envelope adds, failure to respond could lead to a fine. They're trying to get your attention, aren't they? What are these important letters? They are a summons to me and my wife and our daughter to register as voters in the Royal Borough of Kingston so that we may take part in a great democracy. Now imagine that the envelope said on the outside, to be opened only by the person who deserves to do so. What would you think? 
I wonder if you'd open it. What sort of questions might go through your mind? Am I really worthy to open this important letter? Maybe things in our conscience would, would remind us that we're really not that deserving of important communications. Who is worthy? Is a burning question here in our text. Because they search, in verse 3, heaven and earth and under the earth. So that's quite a comprehensive search, isn't it? They search everywhere to find this person, someone who can open it and look inside it. And no one is worthy. And this is clearly deeply personal to the writer, John. He is so distressed that he weeps bitterly. This is not just a, a bit misty-eyed, you know, rubbing a tear away. He is weeping. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll and look inside. So here we have the worship of God in heaven is being disturbed by a human being crying. How awkward. Now, why is this scroll so important? First readers of this text knew their Bibles really, really well. They knew of a similar scroll back in one of the prophets, Ezekiel chapter 2. That scroll was written on both sides as well. It's called an epistograph. And it represented the judgment of God on human sin and wickedness. So there's something ominous about the scroll here. It has bearing on how God is going to deal with the world and deal with all the wickedness and violence and oppression. But there's more. There's more than just judgment. Because as the book of Revelation unfolds, the seals are opened and the scroll is unfurled and events happen on earth. In other words, this picture of a scroll in heaven is umbilically linked to how human history will unfold. And the great news, spoiler alert, is that at the end of the book of Revelation, the end of the Bible, the scroll leads to the world we all want. This scroll, then, is God's plan for his creation, his plan of redemption. His plan to deal with all the bullies, all the abusers, all the oppressors. His plan to end all racism, all slavery, all sickness, all cancer, all injustice. His plan to renew the world and make it a place of peace and plenty, joy and abundance, a world of love. His plan to make all things new. This is the world we all want. And the scroll is going to get us there. So don't you want someone to open it? Because the one who can open it is the one who can enact it. The one who has the, the, the worthiness, who deserves to open this scroll, is the one who can make things happen on earth. We want it to be opened, because unless it is opened, our world is stuck, and we will keep having wars and rumors of war. We will keep experiencing sorrow and death and injustice and misery. And oh, how wretched that would be if our world was just a cycle of suffering, as our Buddhist friends believe. Now we understand why John weeps so much, because there's nobody can open it, so we're stuck. Now, why can't they find anyone? The answer is that God has committed himself to rule his creation through human beings. God has committed himself to rule his world through men and women. Back at the very beginning of the Bible, Genesis chapter 1, God created all things by the word of his power. And then he appointed human beings as his 
regents, his vice-regents, his, his rulers who would have dominion over his world and bring it to the maturity and completion and perfection of all that it was capable of. And he delegates his authority to Adam and Eve and their descendants. God is committed to rule his creation through human beings, but Adam and Eve fell. And in Adam's fall, we sinned all. Now, God didn't give up on his world. He appointed another human and his descendants to rule the world for him. It was Abraham and Abraham's family, and God promised solemnly, through your descendants, I will bless every family on earth. So the hope of the world is set on Abraham and his descendants, the people of Israel. But they fell too. Finally, God made his promise to David, and he said, David, the man after God's own heart, there will be a king in your line, the line of Judah, and this king will rule the nations, rule the world eternally in a rule of justice and peace. You see, God is determined to run the world through humans and to rescue the world through Israel, but both of them have let him down. What will he do now? Human beings are supposed to rule the world, the cosmos, but every human being who has ever tried has always made it a disastrous, self-serving enterprise. Just think about Adolf Hitler. You know, Hitler came to power because he was seen as basically a messiah for the German people who were so crushed after the First World War and how the, the reparations that they had to make, they were, they were subjugated, they, were, they, they, they wanted a better hope, and the hope was Adolf Hitler a man of great ability, a wonderful speaker, great personal authority. And look what he became, self-serving, disastrous enterprises. So what will God do? God doesn't just change the rules. He doesn't just think, oops, that didn't work, come up with plan B. His honor is at stake. He's made the world like this. And so everything looks hopeless because nobody's been found who can open a scroll. Nobody can make God's kingdom come on earth. And it is very bad news for all of us. But all is not lost. Amen? All is not lost. Because secondly, there's a lion. Verse 5. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. <laughs> what lovely words they are. Do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. He is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David. What is this all about? In the Old Testament, very early on in the Old Testament, God began to promise a rescuer who would come into the world, a human rescuer who would come, a royal person who would come and set the world to rights. This figure was known as the Messiah. Messiah means anointed one in the Hebrew language it's Mashiach in the, in the Greek language it's Christ Christos but way back in Genesis chapter 49 when it's very very early days the promise is given to Judah one of the sons of, of Jacob that, uh, uh, that the, the scepter will never depart the rule will never depart from the Judah's family so there's a hope rooted in Judah's family and it talks there of Judah being a lion, like a young lion that crouches down and rises to get its prey. 
And then it talks here of the root of David. And that's another reference from the Old Testament, from Isaiah chapter 11. A promised Messiah who would come from the family of Jesse, David's family, the tribe of Judah, and would be the rescuer of king. And Jewish readers understood this. So at this point, they're rubbing their hands and saying, oh, that's right, the Messiah is going to come and smash down the evil oppressors and lift us up. And Messiah is a great warrior and we're just waiting for him to turn up. He will sort it all out. We know God's ancient promises and we know that God never breaks his promise. So let's go. Get your swords ready. Messiah's coming. Now just think about lions for a moment, will you? Unlike most churches, we actually have some real lions about a mile away at Chesington World of Adventures. What are lions like? The Daily Mirror reported in May 2011 a story about World of Adventures. This was the headline, Horrified Family See Lions Kill and Eat Baby Animals at Chesington World of Adventures. Toddler Oscar Harkin was buzzing with excitement as he arrived at the lion's enclosure. But seconds later, he was in floods of tears. The two-year-old watched in horror as a pride of snarling lions killed and devoured two baby animals at Chesington World of Adventures. The cuddly-looking binturongs, which live in trees like monkeys and look like raccoons, had escaped from their enclosure and were ripped apart by the big cats. Ow. It's not what you want your, tod- you want your toddler to see. Minutes after the zoo had opened for the day, Dad Jason took his family to the trail of the king's enclosure to see the lions. When we got there, we spotted the two baby binturong. They had escaped and were climbing on the lion cage. Before we had the chance to alert the keepers, the lions snatched the animals and killed them. The family complained, and they were offered a refund. (laughs) Jason, from Dorking, said, we were treated like we'd done something wrong. The customer service was shocking. I resent that. You know, I used to work at World of Adventures. Customer service is great. We would have no desire to go back to Chesington after what we witnessed there. Oscar was really upset and kept asking what had happened to the animals. We just hope he forgets about it over time. Chesington bosses apologized and said, despite the best efforts from our zoo team, regrettably, the Binturong did not survive. (laughs) I guess not. But what do you expect if you go and look at the lions? This is what they're like. Powerful, relentless, when they want to strike, the king of the beasts. But that's a lion, okay? Look, notice here. You must notice this. This is amazing. What, the difference between what John hears and what he sees. Because he heard the voice saying, do not weep. The lion of the tribe of Judah has triumphed. But look what he sees in verse 6. Then I saw a lamb. the third part of our drama. We've seen the scroll. We've seen the lion. Now we're looking at a lamb. What kind of lamb is it? It looks as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. This lamb had seven horns and seven eyes, which are the seven spirits of God sent out into all the earth. He sees a lamb, the meekest, gentlest, weakest little creature, And this lamb is even weaker than a regular lamb because it's bearing the marks of slaughter. You can see that it's been butchered. Could there be a more striking contrast from what we expected with the lion of Judah? A slaughtered lamb 
yet standing, yet living, and yet powerful. Because this lamb has the power of God, seven horns, complete power. And this lamb has got the knowledge and wisdom of God, seven eyes, complete knowledge. And so this strange, slaughtered lamb that yet has the power and wisdom of God goes to God and takes the scroll from his right hand because he alone deserves to put God's plans into action in this world. God's good plans, God's kingdom will come now. But notice how this text is working here. Remember I said about imagination. From now on, we have to think about the powerful Lion of Judah, the Messiah, through the lens of the Lamb, the reality of a weak, sacrificed creature. So who is this Lamb? His name is Jesus. It's a picture of Jesus Christ, our Lord. He's the one who was slain. And by his blood, he ransomed, purchased people for God. They sing a new song to him in verse 9. You are worthy to take the scroll and to open its seals because you were slain and with your blood you purchased for God persons from every tribe and language and people and nation. And you've made them to be a kingdom and priests to serve our God and they will reign on the earth. What is the sacrifice, the slaying of Jesus? It is talking about the cross. The old rugged cross. That bitter, awful symbol of torture and humiliation and shame. The worst way that the Roman Empire could think to kill the most disgusting graceful of slaves. A Roman citizen would never be killed on a cross. Polite Roman families didn't mention the word cross at dinner. It's disgusting. Because to be killed on a cross meant not only hours or days of, of torture and agony, it meant absolute shame. You were exposed. Your name was ruined. You were the lowest of the low. And Jesus Christ willingly went to the cross, it says here, to purchase persons for God with his blood. His blood is powerful to rescue us. He's the one who was slain. The cross was where the only perfect human being, the only one who did not deserve to die, was slaughtered in our place. He was torn apart so that you could be made whole. He experienced God's condemnation and rejection so that you could be forgiven and accepted. He was cursed so that you could be blessed. He was broken so that you could be healed. What a saviour. Now there's something incredible here that we really must not miss, friends. We must not miss. The Messiah has come. The Messiah has triumphed. He is powerful. But he's done it by being a slaughtered lamb. That's what's truly amazing. Jesus had all the power to deal with the problems of this world and deal with all God's enemies because he is God. Notice, all the way through this chapter, we're seeing evidence that Jesus is actually God and yet he's distinct from God the Father. 
He's there standing at the center of the throne. I mean, no one would dare to stand in the center of the throne unless they were God. You know, he's got the power and wisdom of God. He's got the seven horns and the seven eyes. That's God's power and wisdom. He, they sing to him a new song. And people in the Bible only get a new song if they're God. And it says, you are worthy. And that's echoing the song back in chapter 4. And who were they singing to in chapter 4? God the creator, you are worthy. Now they're singing to this lamb, you are worthy, who is a human from the tribe of Judah. This would be the height of blasphemy if it wasn't that Jesus Christ was somehow human and divine. He has two natures. And so this Jesus, who is God and showed his power, didn't he, through all his earthly career, whether he was calming a storm with a word or casting out demons or healing the sick, raising the dead with a word, feeding a vast multitude with a packed lunch, miracles of creative power, things that only God could do. This Jesus who had such authority, when the moment came, what did he do? He submitted himself to death on a cross for our sakes. Now, why did he do that? Because, you know, it turns out we are all God's enemies. So if the Messiah was just going to come and smash God's enemies, we would have been on the front line of that. Because we have all lived our lives as if God did not exist and as if we made the rules. I went to the fusion group this week. It was fantastic and absolutely crazy. And heard a definition of sin. Shove off God. I'm in charge. What's the end? No to your rule. Thanks, Matt. Shove off God. I'm in charge. No to your rule. You know, that's for a children, but it, wow, it applies to us. We're all God's enemies. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that came by Jesus Christ. I wonder what we would do with our enemies if we had half a chance. My wife obviously has some ideas. <laughs> If we had such power, oh boy, I'd be like the Incredible Hulk. This is what Jesus does to his enemies. He dies to forgive them. Rather than simply using his authority to judge here, Jesus used, allows himself to be killed to be the slaughtered lamb to buy us back. He died for our sins so that he might purchase a great people for God from every tribe language, people, nation. This is why it's such good news that the Taubuid people have the whole scriptures in their language. Wow! Derek and Liz Daniel from this church many years ago went and quietly translated the Bible into that language so that round the throne there will be Taubuid speakers who are singing praise to Jesus. And they will be our brothers and sisters. But you know, there's something here that's even better news. It's that Jesus is still the Lamb. He hasn't forgotten all his suffering and his humiliation and the pain that he endured. We sometimes imagine, I think, that Jesus, you know, he, he went from the, the tomb, stone cold dead, and he rose again. He was raised to life immortal. And then he ascended with the clouds of heaven, and he's seated 
picture language, at the right hand of God. Remember the right hand? Jesus is in that place of authority and power, ruling, and he will come again. We sometimes imagine, I think, that he left all the weakness and suffering behind. And now Jesus is glorious and strong and bulletproof. But, you know, the Gospel of John knew better. Remember Thomas? Doubting Thomas, we call him. We're a little bit hard on Thomas. Doubting Thomas. Living proof that you should always go to church meetings because he missed one and Jesus showed up. And then he couldn't believe it. I don't know, you know, maybe they've had a mass hallucination. So Jesus came and revealed himself to Thomas. And do you remember what he said? Thomas, it's me. Look at my hands and my side. Touch my wounds. You know what Thomas did? He fell down and said, my Lord and my God. Because now he knew who Jesus was. But remember, Jesus still had the scars. And now in Revelation 5, we see that even in heaven, he bears the marks of a slaughtered lamb. There will be no scars in the world to come except the scars on Jesus Christ's body, which he still bears, those wounds yet visible above. What this means is that Jesus still carries around with him as part of his life experience the humiliation, the God-forsakenness that he experienced on the cross. And that is good news for you and me. You see, we want to know that Jesus the lion is powerful and on our side. And he is. He absolutely is. And there is so much truth in that. He is on our side. He can change things around and transform them dramatically. But you know, when life is really painful and you can't understand it, and that comes to all of us, when life really hurts, and it's apparently irredeemably bad. You know, the idea of Jesus being the lion in the sovereignty of God is only theoretically comforting. At that point, you need to know that he's the lamb. He still is. He suffered in his life, and he bears those scars. And in his experience and in his memory, he understands your weakness and your feeling of abandonment. And he loves you all the same. This is beautiful news. He's with us. He's with us in our apparent God-forsakenness. He's with us when we're down and we're losing. He really does understand. He is in solidarity with us, hurting sinful humanity, even in his heavenly glory. The lion is the lamb. So let's remember that this week as we go out, wherever the front line is that you're going to. It could be a place of work. It could be... Uh, in your very home, it could be that you're a person who has most of their time to themselves but can devote themselves to prayer. Wherever it is, remember the lion is the lamb and he knows you by name. Let's pray. You are worthy, Lord Jesus, to take the scroll and open its seals because you were slain. And with your own blood, you purchased for God people like us and you've made us to be a kingdom and priests to serve you and we will reign help us to reign in the knowledge of this this week wherever you've placed us help us to be those who exercise rule in your name 
and those who are kind and priestly to those outside your kingdom. Lord, please have mercy on us, we pray. Amen.